Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. This week on the show, we have a special treat. Rob Berbea is back on the show, and he and I are actually going to respond to some of the questions that arose as a result of sharing our previous conversation about Rob's work with the imaginal and the soul-making dharma. So we'll set context in the show, but I'm really happy that we got to uh, have this sort of conversation that emerged in response to the inquiry that the previous show catalyzed. Uh, That's really exciting to me, and I'm hoping that uh, as more listeners tune into the show and we dabble in more um, domains, that that will be a thing that we do here at Emerge, that we um, respond, you know, that we don't just put things out and let them be final, but instead uh, acknowledge that any anything like this is just part of an ongoing conversation and inquiry. And so um, very, very happy to share this episode with you. So um, please enjoy this episode of Emerge. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. On this episode, we have back again on the show, Rob Berbea. And in this conversation, uh, we're going to have, we're going to respond to questions, concerns, and feedback that arose in response to our first conversation that we shared um, particularly some feedback that we got from the subreddit stream entry. And so just to set context for this conversation, I want to appreciate a couple uh, Redditors, uh, Duff Stoic, Philosophy Guru, Armila Nymphs, and Aspirant4, among others, for contributing to a, what I thought was a really vibrant and useful conversation about the previous podcast episode we recorded together. And, um, you know, there were some comments that I thought verged on trolling, but actually a lot of it was really beautiful and uh, well-conceived. And I think for me, I saw it as an expression of of interest and curiosity. And so I just want to like honor that. I, I thought that that was really cool. And that also name that this conversation and the questions that we're going to be focusing on are basically pulled directly from that thread. Um, I, you know, I did a little bit of reinterpreting and uh, reassembling, but the questions themselves are pretty much verbatim, more or less, uh, from that thread. And so, you know the, the the basic and general feedback. I think if I could synthesize it in uh, one sentence, would be that people, a lot of folks, left that previous conversation not really feeling like they understood what soul making actually is, or what the imaginal actually is. Um, and some people actually expressed a lot of kind of suspicion or concern about that. Uh, and so 
hopefully by directly addressing some of the questions that were brought up in that thread, we can give you a, a, a better sense and, and uh, enough kind of context to, inc- to per- kind of uh, help you feel comfortable maybe diving into the actual recordings on Dharma Seed, if that's something that ends up being interesting to you. And so um, we're not going to try to do the job of the audio recordings that are available on Dharma Seed, but um, our goal is instead to respond to the confusions and questions that were surfaced through our last conversation. So um, all that being said, in terms of context, Rob, uh, welcome back to Emerge. Thank you, Daniel. It's, uh, I'm really happy to be here again with you. Great. Yeah. And so um, to, to do this well, um, I have decided to do my best to kind of, let's say, channel. Uh, oh, Rob, I think the, the I can hear you typing. Um, yeah. I've, oh, I've, okay. I see. We're going to okay, pause gonna it. You're like, pause you're like pretend. echoing a little bit. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. Should I uh, close some tabs? Would that help on my computer? Some internet tabs? Yeah, that that wouldn't hurt. Sure. So let me close. Uh, as usual, I have too many things open. So, um, Okay. And so it's sounding like I'm echoing and cutting in and out for you. Uh, There were just places, it kind of like, it sounds like it trembles and yeah, exactly cuts in and out, but just at times, maybe that's better now. I've I've closed a lot of tabs and um, I'll also close the email. I mean, yeah, let's see. Um, Okay, let's try that. That's that's probably as good as it's going to get, so... It's good. Okay, uh, so let's just pause for a couple moments and then I'll uh, resume. Okay, so um, in terms of this, uh, the questions I'm going to be asking, I decided that it would be interesting and useful to sort of channel where I imagine the questions are coming from. And I think I'm I can do that because I was kind of a member of the pragmatic Dharma scene for many years. And so, uh, you know, in, in service of that, I'm going to represent some of these questions that were asked in the thread to Rob and, and Rob has agreed to, uh, kind of be a good sport about that. And, and let me, let me do that. Um, and so, uh, Rob, do you have any kind of additional context you'd like to lay out before we jump into the actual questions? Um, no, what kind of thing did you have in mind? Um, nothing in particular. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to speak on, um, on the topic of context. If No, only that, like I said, I haven't, I haven't seen as much of the responses as you have and, and nor do I know that community and what their particular, uh, kind of concerns or set of assumptions are and skills if, if we say are so i don't know that community i haven't seen the questions just a little bit that you sent me in the email but i'm certainly happy to uh try and do that and then um perhaps there are some 
larger kind of perspectives on just the whole intention and process and challenge of talking about all this stuff. We can get to that later, I suppose. Great. Wonderful. Okay. So then let's jump in uh, with what I think was my favorite question, um, you know, as long as it was seen, at least from my held lightly, uh, you know, not to reify this question too much, but, um, you know, so here's the concern. Um, Often, when something cannot be explained in plain English, it ends up just being bullshit. And the Redditor in question linked to a picture uh, about how to understand uh, science articles, right? So um, average sentence is hard to understand and subject matter is simple. It's probably just bullshit. So uh, in a sentence or two, again, this is a question from the Redditor, in a sentence or two, explain the imaginal in plain English. What is it? What are the practices specifically? And how are they better and or different than traditionally Buddhist ones? Okay, so that's three questions that you want me to answer in a couple of sentences. But um, so let, let's can we break them down into at least three questions? Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, I'm we'll we'll process this together as best we can. So maybe we can yeah. start with uh, in a sentence or two. Can you explain the imaginal in plain English? Okay, so I'll try. Um, then, as I said later, we can talk about. Uh, perhaps the kind of assumptions behind the question, et cetera, and and why it might be not so simple to explain it simply. But uh, let's say when we talk about the imaginal, when we talk about the imaginal in this, in this, what we're calling soul making Dharma, we're really talking about, um, if you like, kinds of perceptions. Okay. Uh, Now, usually when we talk about imagination, we we mean uh, just something that's, uh, uh, available to my private eye, but we mean both so-called inner, intrapsychic, and outer, if we like, extra psychic perceptions. So perceptions of the world, perceptions of imaginal figures that appear just to me. We mean all all that, but also certain kinds or ranges of perceptions of the world of things that everyone would agree is there. This tree in front of me, this person uh, that we can all see is there, uh, the fields, the bird song we can hear, whatever it is, as well as more private perceptions. And when we say imaginal, uh, we're not really talking about uh, a kind of uh, f- firm, uh, sharp division. I, I prefer to talk more about a spectrum. So we can talk about perceptions that are more uh, fully imaginal or really less fully imaginal. So first thing is we're talking about perceptions and those perceptions, whether they're inner or outer so-called, are, uh, if you like, held in and supported by, opened up by uh, certain ideas that don't hold uh, a, a view that this perception is real nor mm-hmm. that it is unreal. So uh, when we talk about the imaginal, we're also talking about a, 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 not just perceptions, but also conceptions. Now, usually when we perceive, whether it's an inner experience or an outer experience, we tend to think it's real or it's not real. And this 
uh, opens up that whole uh, dualism and dichotomy uh, to allow conceptions of what we are perceiving and who we are and what is happening and where we are going that are not restricted by our usual uh, kind of more limited conceptions. So the imaginal involves perceptions, inner and outer, that are... uh, that... Are are, um, are are not restricted by the conception. Now, what kinds of perception? Uh, they are um, perceptions that touch the beholder deeply. They are perceptions that strike the person with uh, uh, as as beautiful, deeply beautiful, movingly beautiful. But not just uh, we're not just talking about the kinds of universal mystical perceptions that people might be uh, familiar with, perceptions of oneness, perceptions of universal love, being, awareness, and this kind of thing. We're talking about perceptions, or mostly we're talking about perceptions that involve and enhance and uh, have important to them the particularities of things, not a dissolving of particularity, but a bringing out and a celebration and an honoring and a reverencing of particularities. And what we perceive also starts to have a kind of personhood. So all these all these characteristics mm-hmm. are part of the kinds of perceptions we're talking about. Particularity, personhood, beauty, eros, <laughs> uh, humility. So, so Rob, I'm I'm channeling this redditor, like my archetype of a redditor, and um, you know, he said in a sentence or two, and you went real, you know, you you said a lot, and it and it makes sense to me, Daniel, but I can imagine somebody listening and and feeling like, well, that was just a lot. That wasn't one or two sentences. I can explain meditation, you know, Buddhist meditation. Uh, you sit down until you're enlightened. That's two sentences, you know, and and. Uh, I want to again represent that desire for for kind of simplicity. Is there a kind of nugget that you would point to as being what the imaginal is? I mean, if I say the imaginal uh, is a kind of a whole uh, possibility of the the art of perceptions that bring uh, that open up soul making. Mm. That's it. So the the practice of the imaginal sensing the soul is that is the art of perception that opens up soul making. Beautiful. Um, and the second question this redditor asked was, "What are the practices specifically?" You know, again, here I'm th- imagining he's like, "Oh, well, I know in meditation I follow the breath at my nose, and that is what I do when I meditate." You know, and so. Uh, what are the practices in the, in the same way that following the breath is for Buddhist meditation, perhaps, uh, what are the practices of the imaginal that are clear and succinct and that you can kind of see? I, I, I don't think I can limit them. Part of what the, if you like, the conception of the imaginal is, is that it's not limited. So there will be an infinite amount of practices. If I had to sum up what they do is that again, they're practices of perceiving either Things in in the world that everyone would agree that are there this this desk, my body, uh, this person, um, or inner so called inner things, characters that might appear to me. Perceiving them, uh, meditating uh, 
on that perception, holding them in perception in ways that open up soul making. But what I actually uh, uh, work with in that, we could be anything at all. It could be, as I said, it could be my body, it could be my illness, it could be my death, it could be uh, this person there, it could be some figure, it could be a tree, it could be anything at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then so maybe I can reformulate this question and say, like, what is a particular example of a practice somebody might do if they were practicing in the imaginal work? Uh, okay, so um, if we can, if I can divide it into this kind of artificial division, just for now, for ease of explanation, between so-called uh, inner appearances, if you like, something that arises in my private imagination on the one hand, and then uh, extra psychic, uh, uh, looking at an object that everyone would agree was there. In the first case, a person might be meditating or uh, uh, and, and even gets distracted, and some if some figure arises in the imagination or some scene, or they, they might have been touched by a dream the night before in which there was a figure or a scene. And then they take that, uh, that uh, image and can work with it in ways that include, a, you know, I'd say quite a fair amount of sophistication meditatively in terms of the, the sensitivity of heart, uh, that's involved the sensitivity to what we call the energy body, the, the certain ways of feeling one's somatic experience and conceiving of the body, and also sensitivity to conception, bringing all that uh, subtly and delicately into a kind of uh, relationship with this internal imaginal figure or scene um, in a way that supports soul making, which also is a word I haven't explained yet. Um, and, but the same could apply to this apple tree. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm got my eyes open. I'm looking at it, and I'm bringing all that what I just talked about, my whole sensitivity of the energy body, of my heart awareness, and all the subtlety there, and my conception into relationship with what I behold with my eyes, that everyone else would agree was there, and I'm perceiving it and conceiving it in, in ways that open up uh, the experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, hmm. so, so I think listeners, you might get a sense of how difficult it is to really nail down a practice like we might be able to with Buddhist meditation in the example I use. So um, I think there are also some really good examples in the thread that you can find of people expressing what imaginal practice is like for them or how they experience it. Um, but moving on, I think there's another thread of questioning that I found to be really interesting around the fitting in imaginal practices with kind of more traditional Buddhist uh, orientations to the path. So specifically, um, the questioner wanted to know, like, where do imaginal practices fit into the three trainings of Buddhism. The three trainings for listeners who aren't aware are, I believe, morality, concentration, and insight, I think is how they're typically, or how I've heard them translated. Um, maybe, Rob, you have a different sense of them, but how do the imaginal practices fit into those three trainings from your perspective? So um, the first one, uh, ethics, it's in, in Pali, is sila, um, 
is forms a basis. It really forms an important basis, a sort of commitment to understanding of an inquiry into ethics forms a basis for all the practices that we do. Uh, someone coming to these kinds of practices without that basis and a basis in the other two that you mentioned um, is, is it probably not going to get very far. It, it, it's asking quite a lot in terms of skill, etc. So it forms a basis, that commitment to ethics. But I would say there's a possibility of imaginal practice and this kind of thinking actually extending uh, our ethical uh, sensibilities and commitments and uh, yeah. and bringing in some more challenging questions. So this I addressed, if people are interested, um, actually quite a few years ago, uh, I wonder if it's 2011 or 2012, with two talks, one called The Meditator is Revolutionary and one called The Necessity of Fantasy. And they were both kind of uh, critiques, if you like, of the typical uh, dharmic Buddhist ways of thinking about ethics and where, in fact, uh, they limit our behavior. So in the example I was uh, drawing on there was uh, concern for the environment and, and also uh, about climate change. So you would expect if it was so simple that everyone just needs to be mindful, everyone needs to learn to be calm and train their mind in this way or see that there is no self, you would expect that Buddhists and certainly uh, teachers of Buddhism would, uh, for instance, make radical commitments in relationship to climate change. That's just an obvious ethical choice. The fact is, at that time, that wasn't the case. And the, and the question is why, and why is it mm. that there's so little sort of um, I don't know what to call it strong and gutsy outspokenness and activism around ethical issues and issues of social, environmental, and political concern among Buddhists and Buddhist teachers, and one way of approaching that critique is actually saying, well, the images and archetypes that kind of limit, infuse and limit how we think of the Dharma are actually constraining the ethical range. So that the mm. image we have of the Buddha sitting silently, calmly, unmoved, kind, but not really involved silently in meditation with his eyes closed, actually starts to infiltrate the life and the ethical choices. So it's almost bringing in saying there's a whole other realm here uh, of of our psychology, uh, the image and the archetype, etc., that is influencing things, but we're not talking about it. We're just talking mm -hmm. in simplistic terms, uh, mindfulness, reduction of suffering, seeing the illusion of self, etc., and just look, is it actually addressing the issues? How is it limiting the ethics? So with, with Sila, with ethics, mm -hmm. this forms a basis, mm -hmm. absolutely, a solid basis, and possibly... Uh, Imaginal practice, soul making practice can extend that. With second one, what you what you the actual word in, in Pali is samadhi uh, usually gets translated as concentration. I don't particularly like that word because I don't think it really brings out what the Buddha was talking about. It is not just the ability to nail your mind to some object and keep it there, uh, come what may, without wavering at all. Uh, that's a fairly useful skill, but it's pretty limited. The Buddha talked much more about jhanas, deep absorptions, which are a lot more to do with well-being and mystical experience and opening up a sensibility and sensitivity. All that meditative skill, again, forms uh, 
a, a basis or at least uh, a, an important component, a developing component of soul-making practice. As I said before, it takes a lot of um, delicacy, sensitivity, nuance uh, of, of the art of meditation, meditative skill with all kinds of dimensions of our being to be able to do this work. It's like doing some kind of really delicate sculpture or dance or something like that. It needs a lot of skill. So yes, um, focus and calm and jhanas and all of that, but also a lot of other meditative skills I alluded to. The third one, insight, um, mindfulness, or uh, we we could say actually we could talk about any you know mindfulness, insight, emptiness. Um, these are all important components. You know, one of the things, for example, that we do in soul making practice is really kind of um, bring back in the whole. Uh, experience and uh, and energy of desire and the whole question of desire is it something that i just need to um let go of get rid of mm. get over and actually are there uh, ways that i can open up my experience of desire so it opens me up and opens up uh, other directions so but but to do all that i need to be able to let go i need a simple mindfulness i need to be able to put things down and let go and all that kind of stuff uh, with emptiness, which is also a component of this third panya in the Pali is uh, wisdom or insight. Um, again, we talked about this in our first uh, episode, or this actually technically our second, but the last one. Um, most teachings of emptiness uh, just kind of say something like the self is an illusion uh, or dissolve the self or explode it or something and stop there and maybe get to some kind of absolute or unfabricated. Um, I think soul-making teachings and magical practice are based on a, uh, a, an understanding of emptiness that goes beyond just the deconstruction, that because it sees that everything is empty, including deconstruction, it legitimize, legitimizes a playing with reconstruction. Uh, so it's based on a different understanding of emptiness. Uh, it's not that everyone needs to have a very deep experience of emptiness to be able to do soul making practice, but some people do. Some people need that. Some people take it on faith and some people legitimize it in other ways. Uh, also, uh, it's very common for people doing imaginal practice to actually find that their understanding and experience of emptiness, not just of self, but also of world, uh, the emptiness of world as well as self actually opens up, deepens, grows from doing imaginal practice without doing uh, much more emptiness practice. So that's a way it can work that way around as well. Hmm. Okay. And uh, I'd like to kind of double click on, on the emptiness piece because another sort of inquiry that I heard people represent was something like, you know, I, I, I still don't really understand what the point of imaginal work is, you know, you talk about seeing emptiness and how that frees the mind. That that seems like an endpoint to me. And then they go on to say something like, you know, no self, no intrinsic reality, no problem. What's all this imaginal stuff for? Right. Yeah. So this would be um, a very understandable and probably common sort of uh, question that, that someone would have. Um, I have to say, you know, I'm I'm really not wanting to evangelize or convince anyone. I mean, maybe other people are, but it's not something I want to do uh, about all this stuff. 
Um, I don't even claim that it's better or whatever, whatever than anything else. Um, some people will, uh, like myself, will go very deep into emptiness, all of it, absolutely all of it, uh, uh, deep, deeper uh, than also maybe some other conceptions of emptiness, I still want more. And what is this more? What, where does that come from? It's partly what we call uh, the eros. Uh, so there's something in some people, in some personalities, if you like, in a certain language, in some souls that wants more. And what more does it want? It wants the soul making. It wants those kinds of perceptions. So others, others won't have that. And they're just purely engaged in a kind of technology for the reduction of suffering. And they're just maximizing the reduction of suffering. Thank you very much. That's all I came for. That satisfies me. That's fine. Why, why should I or anyone else try to convince those people that they need anything more? Um, but others will, uh, who have certain personalities, who uh, love deeply, who have a lot of eros, who have a lot of what we call soul, um, who for whom the imagination speaks to them anyway, they will want a different paradigm. Uh, we could also ask, for example, um, what does seeing that there's no intrinsic reality, seeing that there's no uh, self, what does that imply, for instance, about such uh, areas of my being or domains of my being as my sexuality? What does it imply or, or, or what does it give, uh, uh, what does it affect in terms of my relationship with nature other than it's all one, it's all flow, it's all one? What does it imply about the whole way that I see the self and personality? And it's probably the case that in most uh, of what most people think of as this kind of seeing of not self or even understanding of emptiness, that kind of liberation, um, none of those areas are really opened up to be very fertile. They're, they can be an absence of problem there and a certain freedom of movement, but they're not really a generative, fertile, rich, important, meaningful, sacred. Lastly, and connected with that, is that when we travel the... Uh, uh, emptiness path um, and the samadhi path in terms of jhanas, and I think we touched on this in the last episode. There's probably um, I don't know, I've never counted them, but there's probably there's certain very predictable experiences that happen sometimes not in order, but most often in a kind of progression. And you can kind of gather them up and just you know what's going to happen. The and there is a, not just uh, a decrease in suffering. There's also a sacredness there, uh, which to some people is very important, but the kinds of perception of sacredness are, uh, if you like, limited in scope. There's, there's like X flavors. I've never counted X, but it, you know, I don't know, 25 or something. Um, th these are the experiences. And again, it's like, is there something in us, or let's say in some people that wants more, that is not satisfied by that? We can call that craving or greed, or we can call it eros and a desire of the soul for soul making. So that would be some of the some of the things I would say in response to that. Great, and um, you touched on this a little bit, but this is another kind of question that I think was uh, well represented uh, in the conversation. And 
it's around like kind of prerequisites and specifically is this kind of work something that really is only makes sense to do after achieving kind of a certain level of what we might like insight and insight into emptiness yeah um i i want to be cautious here and um so i will say for me personally and i think i described that in one of our uh one of our uh conversations for me going really deep into emptiness and uh uh, deeper than, than I had come across anywhere before. In, in fact, um, it was what kind of landed me or opened me, uh, left me in a place that legitimized all this, uh, what was to come in terms of the exploration. Um, I don't know whether everyone needs to do that. Certainly some people, and I know uh, I can think of some students, they had to do all that. They even got to the point, they can see there's no self, they can have an experience that unfabricated, and some people people would call stream entry in even further, but they, they needed to go further with the emptiness to actually legitimize this uh, non-duality between the fabricated and the unfabricated, this opening up of the possibility of seeing sacredness everywhere. So for some people, that's what needs to happen. And other people don't. They already uh, have maybe from uh, modern philosophical inquiry or just having kind of living with a, a, a kind of wide and deep artistic sensibility. They already have what they need in terms of the legitimization of it mm. for themselves. So they're free to play. Now, the skills that, that are needed, these, I think, are quite, uh, there's quite a lot asked. You know, a lot of soul making happens in relationship. We're beginning to open up that, how people practice with each other, with all this stuff. Um, uh, it takes a lot in terms of honesty, in terms of psychological awareness, in terms of emotional sensitivity, capacity of the heart, um, of the intellect to play lightly with ideas and entertain possibilities. Uh, all kinds of uh, sensitivities to what was called an energy body, somatic experience. I think that's all part of it. Whether someone kind of has so much kind of uh, pull towards the, the, you know, this kind of practice, it's so uh, meaningful for them or they recognize and they have to learn that on the fly as they go, that may be the case. So I think it asks a lot exactly what order things happen in for different people. I think that's more uh Uh, open and fluid Mm. yeah and just to um add a little bit from my perspective on this question i think one of the things that you helped me differentiate between was what we might call like the experience of cessation and the understanding that the whole that's the whole point of why we meditate which is to understand or see the way that emptiness is so clearly that our suffering is alleviated. At least that was how I made sense of it. And so, you know, I think I also have friends, people that I've met who have needed very little meditation to, I think, uh, understand emptiness and have insights in that direction uh, because they've had a lot of philosophical and intellectual training around things like postmodern philosophy or, you know, uh, neuroscience, which shows that the, you know, the self is a kind of like epiphenomenon of collections of networks and the brain firing and so on and so forth. So, that, you know, just to kind of further destabilize this fixation on cessation, which I, I remember when I was a 
member of the this kind of uh, pragmatic dharma community in my mind was you know people were really gunning for it and as was i for many years of my life and so uh, just wanted to add my kind of two cents um to that um and then the another question that came up is uh, is this just a kind of new version of magic or tantra you know it seems like this is the imaginal is a way to allow or include magical practices in a constructive manner, kind of meddling in the apparent contradiction between insight and magic practices. Is that a fair assessment of what the imaginal is? Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what people mean when they say uh, magic. Um, if it's if it's the kind of uh, you know attempt to sort of influence the course of events or uh, influence matter uh, in in some way, then no, there's there's quite a difference. But uh, because the intention in the soul making practices is not for the sake of uh, more and more, it's not for the sake of anything but soul making, anything but that opening up of the sacredness and the richness, etc. Um, so that's one of the distinctions we talk about in, in one of the elements of the imaginal being a fullness of intention, meaning uh, there's a kind of humility and the intention is for soul making. But I could, I, I don't really know what what you mean when you say magic. So perhaps you could explain that, Daniel. The redditor in question, I don't think, really explained what they meant, so I'm not sure. Um, I, I think maybe we could have a similar question, though, around around Tantra. Like, is this a new version of Tantra? Right. Um, so there's different kinds of Buddhist Tantra, and there's, there's other kinds of non-Buddhist Tantras. But um, it has some similarities, but I, I could, we could point to a few differences. Um, for instance, um, usually in a Vajrayana or Tantric practice, the images that you are given are prescribed. They, are, they belong to a kind of limited range of Tantric deities, etc., or bodhisattvas, or this and that. Um, and oftentimes it's actually your guru, your teacher, who will say, you meditate on this. That's your, that's your image. And then it's a very uh, prescribed form and a very prescribed way of meditating. Do this, you do this, you imagine it looks like this, etc. Uh, and you go through a certain sadhana or, or uh, ritual, etc. with that. But uh, I think with imaginal practices, one of the differences there is that we don't prescribe images. So we're more talking about a kind of meta framework of practicing with any image that comes up or any sense of a deity or any object that comes up. And we trust more in what comes to the practitioner as an image or as a perception. Occasionally, we'll be in a group and, for instance, share an image together uh, or whatever, or people will do that in dialogue. But basically, it's open. It's not prescribed like that. A more, I think, related but more fundamental difference between, say, soul-making practice or imaginal practice and tantra is that tantra is still premised 
however distant it might seem and however rarely they might talk about it, is still premised on the Four Noble Truths. The idea of suffering and enlightenment is the eradication of suffering. There's, uh, again, how, however different it is from the original Pali Canon teachings, there's an image of what awakening is, what Buddhahood is, and this is where we're going. So the whole thing is in a, is in a kind of, uh, however extravagant and far out and distant it might feel in the future with Tantra in terms of eons and all that, um, is still within a uh, actually prescribed and fixed idea of what awakening is a fixed logos or conceptual uh, concept of what awakening is and one of the kind of maybe challenging but but kind of radical things about soul making dharma is it even begins to subsume that whole question of awakening so our very we begin to recognize uh, our fantasies in, in the good sense, our images uh, regarding the path, regarding awakening, and the whole sense of possibility of what can open up and what awakening can be just begins, we get a sense that it, it, we begin to get a sense that it can just extend indefinitely uh, in, in a very beautiful way, a very, a very fecund uh, way. And our sense of who we are on the path and where we're going and why we're doing this. So in, in some sense, it kind of, uh, breaks the the box even of uh, the walls or even of that very far out idea of awakening that you get in Vajrayana. So that would be a more fundamental and far reaching uh, mm. difference. Mm. Wonderful. And, and um, okay, so then this next question, I guess, I'm not sure if it was in response to our conversation or the article I wrote that went along with our conversation. And so first I want to just check with you, Rob, are, would you agree that one of the effects of this kind of work can be that it sort of amplifies your sense of meaningfulness in your life? Yeah. Yes, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the question then is um, to me, Meaning comes primarily from doing things that are meaningful. For example, deepening relationships with people I love and doing things that help reduce suffering or solve some important problem. I can't understand how the imaginal would improve my relationships or help reduce carbon emissions or help people suffer less. Meditation, on the other hand, directly creates more meaning for me because it re reduces my own suffering and cultivates virtues like compassion which in turn improves my relationships and helps me focus on what's important to me. Uh, how does the imaginal actually improve my sense of meaningfulness? Okay. Yeah. This is a big question. And again, I, I uh, very much would expect uh, that kind of um, cons uh, question or uh, d difficulty in understanding uh, something but just because of what we've all been saturated in, uh, both by um, the modernist worldview that we can't help walking around in our world, but also by the Dharma view, which, again, emphasizes well, the whole point is reducing suffering and getting the thing, getting, uh, removing the obstacles to uh, a reduction of suffering and also to things like compassion uh, and universal kindness and that sort of thing. But it might be, for instance, of one, if you talk about relationships, uh, that there's a possibility of uh, meeting another person, 
uh, of interacting with another person that just uh, opens up uh, and perceives and is touched by other dimensions of the being that we had no sense of before. And uh, this gives, as I say, different kinds of sacredness, different kinds of beauty, different kinds of duty as well, different um, uh, echoes of uh, the meaningfulness and all that in our life. Uh, this person is no longer uh, just a flat human being or just a, a, a product of evolution or just a set of uh, neurons that uh, – begin to feel the world in a certain way or sense the world in a certain way. This person is also angel, has other dimensions to them. Again, it's not, I'm not claiming that as a reality or uh, insisting that's real and the other is not real, but we open up the legitimacy and the actuality of, of those kind of senses of things and a sense of myself, a sense of my place, and also a sense of the world. So again, it's like... Uh, why should we bother about the climate? There's one one level is just because as climate change kicks in more, there is more suffering. The net suffering goes up in the world. And therefore, just functionally, we want to reduce that suffering. But but there's a whole other dimension possible and attractive to some people that there's a, a, a kind of unspeakable uh, range of possibility of this, our sense of the beauty and the sacrednesses and the divinity and dimensionality and mystery and unfathomability and purposefulness of nature, uh, either single things in nature or of the totality of it. And that gives other levels to our sense of being, our sense of what the world is. A lot of uh, what might happen in sort of certain psychological ways of approaching things that are quite common or certain Dharma uh, ways of approaching things is it all takes place against a backdrop that's just of the world that's just assumed to be a certain way. All the, the, the my uh, intention for my healing, my psychological healing, my dharma healing, my intention for a, a good relationship, etc., to reduce suffering or this or that, it all takes place against what's essentially a meaningless backdrop of flatly conceived matter. It's, it's kind of often operating with that implicit assumption in the background. If we for example, as one of the things that's possible, we can begin to question and open up that whole assumption and all kinds of other perceptions and feelings and dedication is possible in relation to all that stuff. So I don't know, just that gives uh, the beginnings of an answer. Yeah, it does. And I want to um, spend a, maybe a little bit more time here because I think it's such a useful distinction for people who are coming to this from a you know Buddhist background. And that is... Um, we might say that the purpose of a traditional Buddhist path is the dampening and uh, perhaps eradication of, of suffering, of dukkha. And then I think it's fair to say, Rob, that perhaps the, the purpose of the imaginal path, in a sense, is the amplification of what you've called soul-making. And if that's the case, you know, what and, – and, and I think what you've – uh, said in the last answer is that this, unlike perhaps suffering, is an infinite journey, right? Like there's no end to the 
process of soul making in your understanding. And I wonder if you could kind of uh, just uh, elaborate a little bit more on that distinction between suffering and soul making and say a little bit more about like what exactly it is that soul making is. Uh, these are really big questions. So let's, let's see, and maybe you can pitch in if you, uh, if you, if you have any thoughts. So, um, so soul making, uh, is 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 a vague term and it's deliberately vague it's a deliberately elastic term but um what we could we could talk about something called soulfulness or certain language soul soul making is um the engagement with experience participation in experience let's say whether it's intrapsychic or extrapsychic that um brings with it a sense of soulfulness and what does soulfulness means it means and here we could rattle off a long list um uh depth a sense of depth be- beauties mysteries uh eros um uh, is characterized by humility, by this uh, being touched in the heart, by the kinds of sense of sacredness, multiplying, complexifying, getting wider and wider, not being restricted. Um, there's uh, a sense perhaps of vulnerability even, um, of divinity, even if I don't have a kind of rigid or fixed or even clear theology worked out, there is a sense of divinity that opens up. Uh, reverence, dimensionality, love, all these are aspects, and we could list many more, uh, that are, ca- are characteristic, uh, make up, constitute what we call a sense of soulfulness. Soul making is whatever practices and attitudes and thoughts and uh, ways of being um, open up and support that sense, a sense of soulfulness and a widening sense of soulfulness. So uh, we have a sense, this is something I'm doing, I'm creating this, but I'm also somehow discovering this. Um, In the process of doing that, uh, when I start to engage those practices and attitudes and ideas, etc., that create and, and discover a sense of soulfulness, then if you like, my um, ability, my capacity, uh, and my dexterity to experience in those kinds of ways again and further, to extend that experience, uh, increases just by virtue of practice, by virtue of that opening, building on those openings. So we could say, if we define soul as an, a thoroughly empty phenomenon, but if we define it as uh, it's that in the being, that organ, if you like, or instrument of the being that can sense inner and outer, can sense, can perceive in ways that bring soulfulness. Soul making then is the generating of soulfulness and the supporting of my capacity, uh, my organ, my instrument to, to sense that way. Mm. So I Beautiful. don't know if that if that yeah. answers uh what begins well, well, we'll we'll find out when we share this conversation. I suppose if if it feels satisfied to the uh, person who posted that question, um, and then before, so the last question from Reddit that I want to uh, share in this space, and I think it's my my favorite question is: um, Is this a cult? Is this what a cult? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I, I don't know. Do, do you feel like you're in a cult, Daniel? I mean, <laughs> well, I've never met you in person. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I, when I saw this question, I, I, I said, well, if it is, I hope I get my cult, you know, decoder ring in the mail soon because I, I, you know, I haven't really been getting much correspondence from the other cult members. I gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can be in a cult of one, I suppose. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, is it a cult? So I, I don't know what, 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 what's a cult. I mean, generally it seems to me that uh, a cult is something that is, uh, doesn't allow uh, differences of opinion, that is quite rigid uh, in its hierarchy. And when there are differences of opinion or expressions of individuality, uh, they are met uh, with in some kind of shaming way or pun- punitive way, etc. Um, there's a kind of dogma there uh, that's kind of, sort of enforced. Um, uh, there's a disempowering of individuals and their autonomy, etc. Th- these kinds of things is uh, it's seem to me characteristic of a cult. Would you add an, anything more, Daniel? I mean, yeah, I think that that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, I would say that uh, I can't remember what I said now, but let's see. Um, I think I personally, and I, I, it kind of explicit in the teachings is that this is a creative and elastic and open-ended paradigm. In other words, whatever ideas we have uh, that one might call dogma are are more intended to a open things. Up, they're a process of opening things up, and also explicit in the teachings is that the whole conceptual framework is will will be stretched and will also shatter, will break at some point, will include contradictions, etc. And my hope, very strongly, is that as things go on, if they do go on or whatever, that people will start to feel like they can be creative and bring their uh, discoveries and their creations into the whole paradigm. So it begins to be organic. Uh, no one owns it. Um, but it's a bit like science. You know, is, is science a cult? No, not really. It's just that you you do need quite a lot, going back to what you asked earlier, you do need quite a lot of understanding and skill to uh, kind of really offer something valuable into the scientific discourse or the philosophical discourse or what whatever it is. So it asks that. Um, I, what were the other things? Um, can you remind me? Uh, attributes of a cult. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think, I think we've, we've responded to this question adequately. I think the, it, it was, you know, I partly brought it up as a joke because it's so not what this is, but I also want to recognize the place that this kind of question is coming from in terms of, you know, in the spiritual world, there's a lot of sketchy stuff going down. And, you know, it is easy to see radical claims um, or new quote unquote paradigms and be suspicious that they're coming from a place where people want to make money or control other people. And I think, you know, that's not what's happening here from my perspective, you know, being uh, an ocean away from you, Rob, and your and the community in the UK. But I, I do think that, you know, we've we've done a good job of, you know, dissuading people from that 
perspective. But if, you know, we share this conversation, they still have questions, you know, that can be, uh, maybe that can, <laughs> we can, we can reflect on that more and, and see what they really mean by the term cult. But in any case, um, I appreciate you playing, playing ball with that, that question. Cause, um, I think it, it's, it's helpful. Um, and then, so the last question that I think we can spend some, the rest, however much time you want to give to it because we've now kind of exhausted the uh, questions that I took out of the conversation on, on Reddit. And now we can kind of take a step back, I think, as we discussed previously and, and sort of reflect on why these kinds of questions um, and this desire for maybe we could say like simplicity uh, in explanation is so challenging within the context of the imaginal. And the story that I'm remembering as I asked this question, I think you shared it was either Feynman or some other Nobel Prize winning scientist who, when a reporter asked him, like, why can't you just sum up your discovery in one or two sentences? And the scientist responded, well, if I could sum it up, in one or two sentences, do you think they'd be giving me a Nobel Prize, right? And so there's this kind of tension, I think, between our desire for simplicity and, you know, uh, what what it is that uh, you're pointing to, and what it is I think that um, acts of discovery in general can point to, at least uh, the, the, if they're if I think they're in my estimation, paradigm shifting, um, you know, you don't have to agree with that assessment. Um, but I'm curious to hear you respond like to that sort of tension between, um, perhaps uh, simplicity and, and clarity and all that. You know, there, there's, uh, certain things that it's totally appropriate to explain simply if we were, uh, you know, if I was an engineer and I was trying to explain to you the engineering challenges and mechanisms of a suspension bridge, it, it's, yeah, just lay it out simply or whatever, or even, you know, the kind of process of nuclear fission in an atom bomb or something like that. That's, that's completely appropriate. Um, I think, uh, uh, I think there are other things that are that are not so easy to explain. Even explaining emptiness can be, uh, to a certain extent, relatively simple. And explaining what I would call meditative techniques and technologies um, can be and, and should be relatively clear. And it's something I, when I do that as a teacher, I really try to take as much care to make it really clear uh, what people can do. And then there are other kind of you know, domains of, of human being and human exploration and uh, that that just won't be reduced uh, that way. You know, it's not appropriate. We actually kill something. And more than that, there's something, if, if we go back to this word soul, um, soul doesn't only want what's simple. So the movement um, of a lot of uh, let's say mindfulness meditation, and then a lot of typical dharma is towards more and more simplicity. Just this moment, just this breath, just this sight, just this sound, etc., etc. And then even beyond that, to just this—it's all one. All all diversity or complexity dissolves into some kind of oneness, etc. So the movement is towards simplicity. That is part of we could say um, 
what the, the soul is fulfilled, uh, the being is fulfilled to a certain extent in, in that movement towards those kinds of deep simplicities. Um, but there's another part of what we what I've called the soul just now that actually wants uh, richness and complexity and will generate it and will discover it and will create it more facets to things um, complex ideas sophisticated subtle ideas that expand that are not so rigid uh, that fracture into other ideas um, that whole richness and fertility uh, and that whole movement of expansion is actually implicit in our whole conceptual framework and i would say it's what the soul wants so that's one thing or a couple of things um i would also say you know uh again if we explain uh why let's say uh from the neuroscience point of view um we explain that what's happening neurologically in meditation and how this basically uh creates happiness or allows happiness or even if we don't even go into the neurology and we explain just how training your mind uh, to be calm to be uh training in non-distractedness training into letting go of reactivity how that uh supports happiness and well-being and actually also things like efficiency in life all that is actually really easy to understand and relatively simple to explain but partly because in explaining in in those terms and with those uh constructs there we don't have to explain anything new regarding the, the basic sort of worldview Everyone knows about neurons uh, to a certain degree. Everyone knows the basic kind of uh, scientific materialism that goes with that, um, etc. The basic notion of a person and what the purpose of life is and all of that. With this part of what's happening with this uh, soul-making teachings is that, for instance, we're not going just for a oneness we're not just going uh, in the direction of dissolving self we include that um, but more than that there is as i said uh, in the other podcast and today there's actually a different understanding of emptiness too so all that needs explaining um the way that emptiness opens out the legitimacy and the possibility of, of seeing uh, all kinds of ways of looking and all kinds of sacredness. We're not taking neuroscience uh, as a kind of dogmatic basis or assumption uh, for what a human being is and what the world is made of and, and how, how human beings work. We're actually at times uh, questioning that or, or opening up very different worldviews, very different anthropological views. Um, in fact, when we don't even have one worldview, so it's not like, oh, here's the worldview. Uh, what this legitimizes, not just ways of looking, uh, of, uh, a diversity of ways of looking, but a diversity of conceptual frameworks. So I can go into a neurological p point of view and just look at things that way and understand, of course, fine. I just don't believe it's ultimately real. Um, I can come out of that and go into all kinds of other ways or a practitioner can. Um, in so there are multiple, actually infinite, endless possibilities for worldview. Um, that's another thing. Uh, another reason is we have to actually, if we're going to get into this, actually have to start re-legitimizing uh, or convincing people, perhaps, if they demand convincing, uh, re-legitimizing the imagination. 
uh, which has been denigrated for the most part over several hundred years in Western society. I also have to re-legitimize or give place to and reason for, uh, let's take another look at desire. Are we just trying to let go of it? Are there other things we can do with desire? Are there other uh, levels and elements of desire that can open us up? So all this is very, very different from both the typical Western modernist worldview and also the, the typical sort of set of Dharma assumptions. So all that is going to need um, uh, uh, investigating, unpacking, um, etc., convincing, um, all that. You know, so that's partly why it's difficult to explain. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, what is coming to my mind? There's this book that I'm reading now by I think he's a physicist, David Deutsch, called "The Beginning of Infinity: Explanations That Transform the World," and he makes the argument in this book that you know he says uh, that. All progress, both theoretical and practical, has resulted from a single human activity, the quest for what I call good explanations. And good explanations um, can be quite complex because reality itself is quite complex. And so especially if we're attempting to move forward a paradigm, it will probably look quite complicated as it's being built just as i imagine you know modernism probably looked quite complicated to pre-modern people you know we had to have a whole like enlightenment for it to for it to come into being and and uh so just so you know these things i think that rob you're talking about like can there is a there is the possibility of a simplicity on the other side of complexity but the explanations themselves at least I've experienced them to be themselves kind of psychoactive and sort of threaten various um, materials that I've built my conceptualization of the world out of. And so there is a function of explanation that goes beyond this sort of just practice and uh, pragmatic, or or maybe not, but certainly this practice-based sort of sense of what it is that for instance, meditation is all about like, and you can actually experience this in a Dharma talk. If you listen to a good Dharma talk, it itself does things to you. It itself makes your, makes you experience the world differently. And so, uh, I just wanted to kind of add that piece because there's, I think it's under that, that aspect is so often underestimated by, um, Buddhist practitioners and spiritual practitioners in general, because I think there is this kind of, retreat from the complexity of life and a desire for uh, the simplicity of Buddhist practice that I see in a lot of these spaces. And I wonder if, if, if there's anything you'd like to say about that in terms of the kind of cultural context, which might make people so hungry for a simple explanation. Uh, Thank you for that. That was, that was very, very beautifully put, and um, and you covered a lot. Um, I, I'm not sure what to add, or if you're after something in particular. Um, I'd just like to say that I, I uh, you know, I'm not against uh, the movement of simplifying 
and simplification of consciousness, of perception, of thought, etc. I think what I kind of object to a little bit is when that overextends itself and we only want things, uh, we only want uh, we only hold in esteem that movement towards simplification, either meditatively or conceptually or in the way we look at the world. So it's a certain gear. One can go, or, or, or it's a set of gears, the, those movements towards simplification. It's great. And again, you ask, what are the skills? What are the prerequisites? Yeah, the ability to do that meditatively and with the thinking and just let's just simplify and look at it this way. Uh, that's really important. You know, there's a lot of relief that comes, especially as you point out in our uh, society is, uh, these days it's so complex in so many ways and our minds uh, that are full of thoughts and, and all that. I think what I would just like to add and say again is there are other desires in the being for many, many people, not for everyone. And if, if going towards the simple and simplifying everything and, and just the reduction of suffering does it for, for someone, that's great. Go for it. You know, uh, I'm not insisting or, or trying to convert anyone at all, but there are my experiences so much working with people that um, some in in their experience with with let's say a difficulty when it's looked up and opened opened up in a soul making way with all the complexity that that brings that uh, they are kind of it's fulfilled something or satisfied or quenched. Uh, temporarily something in them that isn't uh, in the simplification mm-hmm. um, as you said uh, just a couple more things so uh, yeah you know Im- imagine us being kind of time transported back to medieval times and, and we're gonna try and convince someone about uh, the you know uh, the neuroscience of uh, meditation, <laughs> it would, they, they would be completely bamboozled. Like they just wouldn't understand what we were talking about, even just assuming that there was no God or, or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, this is all contextual, um, what we uh, hold hold as, as complex. And there's a certain uh, – it's actually um, Owen Barfield, I think I might have mentioned this in a talk, said, uh, you know, uh, a knot, like a knot in a shoelace, is actually quite a complex thing. When you un- untie the knot, you're left with a simpler state, two bits of string that are not knotted. The movements you have to make to untie that knot are, are the hand movements, the finger movements, actually usually pretty complicated. But you're ending up with something that's simpler. So this whole question of complexity and simplicity is not well, guess what? It's not as simple as, as it seems. Um, and the other thing, just to, to, to touch on what you said, um, and I said this, I think, in, in one of our podcasts, um, you know, there's also the re-insoling of uh, the intellect, of concept, of ideas, of thought, and the possibility of that becoming beautiful and rich and, again, endlessly kind of fecund and um, and far-reaching in its implications. And uh, yes, there is something both, I think, um, necessary uh, to, to crack open for some people it's a, a kind of uh, rigidification or solidification of certain ideational structures won't allow this, this kind of soul-making experience. They will just refuse it. Uh, they won't 
uh, it would just be dismissed within a certain uh, rigid belief structure or set of assumptions. So sometimes that needs cracking open. That that knot, go back to that analogy, needs untying. And that takes quite a lot of work. However, I view both the ideas themselves and the challenging of ideas and the cracking open of conceptual frame, I, will, I view all that as part of soul making. As you said, sometimes it's that can be as exciting uh, for the soul as, as, an, as working with an image directly. So idea and image, to go back to what we said at, at the beginning, are part of uh, soul making. Mm. Mm. So I don't know if I, I answered what you actually asked. But, uh, uh, I, I don't know, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Okay. And uh, I, I, I'm also wanted to say, like, I'm going to go out on a limb and imagine that, or say that if you made it to the end of this conversation and it, and it was interesting to you, that you are the kind of person who has these other dimensions and wants to explore them, right? Like the very, like the expression of curiosity itself is implicated in this whole kind of perspective and paradigm. Um, and so just to include that, you know, um, and just name that if you're listening now, you, you kind of made it to the, to the end of this conversation and hopefully it was interesting to you. And in that case, there's something there. Yes. Yeah. If there's anything that you want to, um, say to kind of move this conversation to a, towards a closing. Um, let's see just a couple of things. I mean, one is in, in relation to what you just said, um, that so far, um, in, in my experience, um, most people have gotten into this kind of practice or this these kinds of ideas or this uh, body of teachings, etc. These practices. Um, most people have gotten into it um, in a, in a way that it became like you know profoundly and, and widely important in their lives and and their practices, either from just hearing a couple of kind of random uh, randomly selected uh, dharma talks on on the subject of which there are, there are many now um and even though they didn't understand it all uh, and didn't have from that one dharma talk didn't didn't get a, a, a grasp of the whole framework um but something was touched or in the examples given or, or something that was said in the ideas questioned something was recognized something drew them on and they wanted to explore more um or, so there's that kind of uh, probably the majority of people who are uh, interested. Or um, I, I or Catherine is at the moment, there's not more teachers than that. Hopefully there will be. But um, uh, Catherine are working with someone one-on-one uh, -on -one or in a small group with some difficulty that they have, some suffering, some pain. And uh, if, if it's me and I'm the teacher, I kind of intuit that if you like an image is in the air there's the possibility of this uh of them accessing an image or an imaginal perspective or sensing the soul uh of themselves or the situation or the problem and then guiding them gently through that uh, uh, helping that to open up for them um and then they experience something that's more than just the the there is uh almost always a, a decrease in the suffering, a relief of the suffering and easing. But they experience more than that. They experience this uh, sense of soulfulness and beauty and meaningfulness and mystery and duty and grace and all the rest of it. Um, and they're, they're profoundly touched by that. That touches them as it speaks to them more than just, ah, good, I got rid of the suffering. Ah, good, I feel some relief, some ease. Um, it doesn't just... 
this this kind of practice it doesn't just uh, dissolve the suffering, but it kind of gives uh, gives us uh, opens up different perspectives on it, different kind of dimensions or levels of it. Um, and then from that experience, they want to explore more. Mm. Um, it will be interesting what happens from this podcast. I don't know. It's uh, it might be that you and I sort of sitting here and discussing kind of slightly. Uh, uh, abstract and brief sort of attempt to at explanation is that the uh, explanation of the sort of paradigms involved that that does give rise uh, to uh, a real kind of pa- passion and interest for some people but but that probably will be fairly fairly new although you described um your experience there mm. but again it's like it seems like one one thread i want i would give, just give a personal uh uh actually just reiteration of, of what uh, what I part of what I just said and, and something that's been a thread through our conversation you know so I have this uh, uh, illness for the last three years um, pancreatic cancer with very uh, very poor prognosis um, and uh, all kinds of challenges with that from opera a very uh, extreme, uh, radical operation and extensive chemotherapy, all kinds of drugs and side effects and things going wrong with my system. So if I just speak personally now, you know, I am 52 years old, facing a possible early death, um, all kinds of uh, physical pain, uh, discomfort, a lot of incapacity. There's a lot that I can no longer do because of my uh, illness and because of the drugs and all that, um, limitations, etc. Now, I can, because of the uh, training in what you're calling pragmatic dharma and my explorations of that and my dedication to that over years, um, I could just be with all this or with different elements of the difficulty of what's involved in, in a kind of... Uh, really extreme illness like I have, I could just approach that with a set of tools of what we might call pragmatic dharma, with whatever extensions I have in my view of emptiness, and just decrease the suffering. I could see the emptiness of myself, I could see the emptiness of the illness, I can see the emptiness of dying, I can see the emptiness of time, etc, etc. And I do draw on that um, quite regularly. And it just punctures uh, the, the suffering there and, and brings a perspective of something deathless or, or etc. So that's very available and that's very important and good. But here am I in this situation dealing with this and something in me wants more than that. Wants more than that in relation to this uh, illness, in relation to the possibility of dying at still fairly a young man, uh, etc., I want some, something in me wants something more than just the quelling of suffering, the release of dis-ease. Something in me wants soul-making. Something in me wants to ensoul this illness, this death, and this life. And it's not because I'm afraid of uh, the fact of dying or I'm afraid of meaningless or anything like that. So when I practice with it, with the difficulties that come up and the the wide range of difficulties there, I I find myself just drawn to, out of curiosity, what's possible here in 
in uh, relating to this, in the perception of my body, my illness, my death, and all that. And the intention is for soul-making. There's eros there in my very approach to to this very... you know, uh, obvious disease uh, and and everything that it brings. I want more than just the reduction of suffering. Mm. So there's a, a personal example, and you know, some people will be like, "I don't get it. Uh, it's not important." That's as I said, I've said three or four times. That's completely fine, you know. Um, but there will be other people who, when they taste that something more. Um, whether it's before they've done all the emptiness thing or after they've done the emptiness thing or to some degree uh, gone down that path of, of emptiness, they will say, I want this too. I want this too. I want that opening. It, it adds um, colors, dimensions, directions, beauties, sacrednesses that are otherwise not available. And we can just say um, something in the soul wants that for some portion of the human uh, population, something like that. Thank you, Ralph. Sure. Um, Okay. Well, that brings our conversation, I think, more or less to a closing point for now. Um, I'm sure that there will be more questions, but, um, you know, thank you so much, Rob, for coming on the show and and, uh, being willing to engage with this feedback. I think that, um, you know, our capacity to respond to feedback, like what you're demonstrating right now, I think for me at least is an indication of, of a, of a worthwhile system is a worth like that, that it is willing to engage with the world in this way. And, and Reddit, (laughs) uh, you, you don't know Rob, because you don't use Reddit. I've been a Reddit user for gosh, like eight or nine years. I I know my user account is six years old and, uh, so I know the kind of place that can be, and I think it, it's really heartening to me as a Reddit user and just as an on citizen of the internet that you are willing to engage in this kind of participatory dialogue. So um, I just want to thank you and appreciate you and um, uh, appreciate this conversation for taking place. So so thank you, Rob. Thanks, Daniel. It's, it's my pleasure. It's uh, um. I just uh, in- enjoying being with you and having this conversation. I, I, as you said, I don't know that audience, but I hope I hope that it's helpful and uh, interesting for those uh, who might be drawn, you know, who might be uh, wanting to explore something like this. So, thank you.